central religion, of which there is none, according to Blake, um, would be the idea um, that there something like the idea that um, religion is has something to do with the structure of the universe rather than with the structure of the human mind or human soul. Um, so he says, and we'll do this quickly, then we'll get back to the songs of experience, but man has no notion of moral fitness but from education. Naturally, he is only a natural organ subject to sense. So what we are naturally is only um, subject to our own sense impressions. And that's a little bit like what Locke says. If you think of us as pure natural creatures, we would be um, blank slates. Man cannot naturally perceive, but through his natural or bodily organs. Man, by his reasoning power, can only compare and judge of what he has already perceived. From a perception of only three senses or three elements, none could deduce a fourth or fifth. Um, and that seems certainly true, that um, if you didn't know um, that there was such a thing as light, um, you wouldn't be able to, and if you couldn't see, you wouldn't guess there was a sense of vision. Um, echolocation took a long time for people to figure out because we have no idea what the experience of echolocation is like that bats have. We can't just check out our own senses and say, oh, there could be another sense where you could hear your way around the world. Um, yeah? Um, just, I don't know if it's worth pausing on this, but I always have been kind of perplexed. You couldn't um, think of another sense. You couldn't think, deduce. Yeah. Deduce. And so I think of um, hearing and touch, which seems like it's the same thing, but just hearing's at a higher register and touch is at a lower register. But maybe that's a daft way of thinking. Um, I think it's the, the experience of hearing versus the experience of touch. Physically, they're similar, um, as is echolocation and hearing, obviously. But um, experientially, you wouldn't um, think from the sense of touch. You wouldn't get that there are creatures who could touch at a distance, let's say, and, um, and whose touch at a distance would be much more precise than our touch... Um, uh, coming out of contact. So, I mean, I, th I think obviously we know that birds have senses that we don't. For example, birds can sense gravitational fields. And, um, but what that's like, we can't possibly know. And um, we can only know it, we don't deduce it, we observe it. That is, through experiments you can see that birds are actually, if you mess around with um, the magnetic... Uh, I'm sorry, not gravitational fields, magnetic fields. Um, if you mess around with magnetic fields, uh, if you put birds in um, a situation where the magnetic fields are confused, they get confused even though no mammals um, would notice any difference. So we found that out experimentally, but we have no idea what it's like, uh, what it would be like to have a sense for the direction of the magnetic field. Um, I suppose not to not to dwell on this, but I guess I am. But I suppose it to you could say that like our sixth sense is maybe like a reading of magnetic fields, but we're the sense is dulled and we're not quite sure how to interpret it. So you have this sense of like something else, and what, so maybe it's like just an improperly registered aspect of your sensorium. But we Which, don't have yeah. a sixth sense for magnetic fields. Mm -hmm. um, 
it's yeah. something that birds develop that we didn't. Mm. They they come after birds branched off from mammals. Yeah. Well, I suppose if you were feeling something, then you couldn't quite ascertain how you were feeling it. Okay, so there's... <laughs> um, William James makes a really strong argument that I think is pretty pretty generally accepted, that if you think you have some glimmer of some um, sensory experience that you haven't had, you really don't. What you have is just a, a slightly odd mixture of the sensory experiences that you've already had. And there's a lot of experimental proof for that. Um, it is true that we have more than five senses. That's the, the idea that there are five senses comes from Aristotle. Um, and it's false. Um, Maybe we, temperature. Yeah, temperature, proprioception, uh, vestibular sense of balance, which is um, the vestibular system. Um, and it's also true that proprioception, for example, is a really hard sense. There's a reason Aristotle didn't come up with it, which is that it's not an obvious sense the way taste or touch or seeing is. Um, but it's there. It's just very subtle. So there are subtle senses um, besides the, the standard five. Yeah. What about the combination of two senses? Yeah, that's also known. That's, that's actually um, what the term common sense refers to. Uh, so when you say, oh, it's just common sense that a wall will keep people out, um, that's not what <laughs> common sense means in um, originally and um, philosophically. What common sense means is that you are perceiving something through more than one sense. Um, I see my finger um, pushing down on the sharp corner of the book. And you feel it too. And I feel it, and um, I put them together. That is, um, what happens is two different, two radically different sensory modalities. I'm glad we're going through this quickly. Two radically different sensory modalities um, combined as a single experience. And so the, uh, this was described by medieval philosophers as um, a synthesis within the common sense or the, um, the thing that the senses have in common. So it's the sense that um, brings in um, sensory information from the other senses and um, joins them together so that they become, um, they become common to a single experience. Um, so there's that. <laughs> okay. I think we should stop. No, 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 no. Isn't learned echolocation a thing that blind people can do? Yes, it is. And um, um, so the question whether... Is there some slight version of echolocation that we have? Yeah, movie makers know there is because you have to, you know, you can tell. Um, if a movie doesn't have the right sound for a cave, people can tell. If the movie doesn't have the right sound for outdoors versus the sound for indoors, people can tell. So we are able to get some sense of our environment simply by hearing. And people who have, who have been blind um, from birth or from very young are able to do echolocation, sometimes stunningly well, like they can shoot baskets with echolocation, um, by clicking and listening to the echoes of their clicks. Um, and so if you want to say, as perhaps some people do, that um, there is some very, very, very dim echolocation, possibility of echolocation that gets 
um, refined thousands and thousands of times among some blind people. Um, canes tap for the same reason. The reason blind people tap with their canes is um, less that they're feeling the ground because they know what the ground is. They know it's a sidewalk. It's that they can, they can hear, and they may not know that this is what they're hearing. Um, that is, they may not uh, describe it this way. Um, but they can hear um, the environment around where their canes are tapping by the echoes um, that that environment produces of the tapping of their canes. Um, this is if, uh, however, just, I can't believe this. Um, uh, this tends to happen, this is something Oliver Sacks talks about. Um, Emily's a big lover of Oliver Sacks. Um, My mom is too. Um, um, Not all this neurological stuff. Some, some people, um, some blind people, some people who go blind, that is, who have, who have had experience of seeing and then go blind, um, will lose, will devote visual cortex entirely to their other senses, and if they're doing echolocation, mainly to sound. Um, some blind people won't, but will um, continue having very intense visual um, memories and will um, negotiate a world that for them is still a visual world. And I think the second category, of whom John Milton would be an example, um, he very much was a visual poet um, even after 20 years of blindness. Um, the second category is not ha of people is not having the same experience as the first category who are who are actually doing echolocation. So no, I mean it's it wasn't. Beethoven hearing? Even after he, he was deaf, yeah. And when he was composing, wasn't he yeah. in his yeah. head what he was yes. composing? Yeah, very much so. Um, I think that, as I understand it, you don't lose auditory cortex um, if you go deaf, even if you've been deaf for a very long time, um, but you do lose visual cortex. Wait, what do you mean, that the part of your brain that's devoted to vision gets re, for a lot of people, gets repurposed to the other senses. Um, so there's a huge, a whole lot, <laughs> what you learn when you study blind, there's a whole lot of um, brain that goes to seeing. Seeing requires a whole lot of, of uh, neural processing, um, more than any other sense. And if you go blind, there's a lot of brain that's made available um, for other uses. Mm -hmm. And for some people, like Milton, it, it is devoted to visual imagining, so it's still used visually. For other people, it gets repurposed um, to hearing and to smelling and tasting. And you I think... With these two fingers, especially yeah. for Braille? Yeah. They can't tell if it's... Like, the sensitivity in the first two fingers is really, really increased, but they can't tell which finger they're touching necessarily. Oh, really? Just yeah. Oh, wow. Because one keeps track of where you are on the page, and one keeps track of the actual, of the letters and words that they're reading. Uh-huh. And so they, you know, both of these are used for reading the same way both eyes are used for reading. But you can't tell which eye is reading, you know, is doing what. Yeah, yeah. You know? So they don't know which finger is touching what. They just know that they're reading as long as it's doing So that's common sense, too. That is, they're getting two different um, uh, perceptions from, one from the, um, it's the same nerve, though, that does the... Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, which the, is why it's, I think, both of these two that they use. Right. But they're still, they're still separate as far as the information they're paying attention to, but the attention they pay is, is um, brought together before it turns into an actual conscious experience of reading. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so that's what Blake means. Uh, <laughs> out of all this, yeah. I think this class should be called Illuminati 101. <laughs> <laughs> what is Illuminati, actually? I just hear people saying it, but I don't actually know what I it means. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. Oh. It's a German <laughs> cult. And they got mixed up with the Freemason symbol of yeah. the triangle. Yeah, now it's horribly misused. Yeah. Yeah, but there's also Robert Anton Wilson, so um, who has a good SF book on the Illuminati, um, speculative fiction. Anyhow, he read Blake, and what Blake says? <laughs> did he read Blake? Yes, absolutely, he did. Um, is that from a perception of only three senses or three elements? Says Blake, none could deduce a fourth or fifth. None could have other than natural or organic thoughts if he had none but organic perceptions. So if you got religion out of looking at the world and saying something like um, what uh, people arguing for the existence of God frequently say, which is look at the world, how it's so complicated, how could it not be created? Um, therefore, everything in the world tells us that God exists, and that's really important. Um, so that would be, again, the kind of blank slate or platonic um, view of God as something outside us, of the truth of heaven, of religion as something outside us, and that we perceive by looking at what is outside of us. If any of you know Descartes' um, meditations, as I hope some of you will remember, um, Descartes, um, uh, basically, uh, there's six meditations and they're a kind of recreation of the world in six days. So Descartes begins by saying, I don't know if anything exists at all, how could I know? And then at the end of six meditations, which, which is at the end of six days, he's proved that God exists and the outside world exists. So how does he do it? He basically says, well, I, the one thing I do know is I think, therefore I am. And then he goes on to say... Um, the world is so full of a number of things that I could never have imagined myself that I can't have dreamt them up. But in particular, I wasn't sure if, I, if the world existed or not. I was uncertain. I didn't know. Um, and nevertheless, I have this idea of God as someone perfect. And where could I get that idea since I myself am imperfect? How could I get an idea of God who is perfect how could my imperfect self come up with the idea of perfection? And his answer is, it couldn't. Um, I could not conceive of perfection unless something greater than me, and in fact perfect, gave me that idea. And that perfect being who gave me the idea of perfection is the only perfect being there can be, which is God. So that's how Descartes proves, or thinks he proves, that God exists. And then that the outside world exists, it's easy because if God exists, he won't be fooling me because he's perfect and perfect beings um, don't, don't, aren't deceptive and therefore the world exists. 
So Descartes, um, from taking the self as simply the, this tiny, tiny point of self-awareness, I think, therefore, I am. Um, that is the only thing, says Descartes, we can be absolutely certain of. And therefore, what we are is just this tiny point of self-awareness. And everything else comes from outside of us, and therefore all we are are perceivers, first of our own existence, and then of everything that is not us, and which must exist because, precisely because it isn't in us. It has to be somewhere else which is outside of us. So that's um, Descartes' meditations in a very tiny nutshell. Um, and that's what Blake is denying. Yeah. Can he will things such as who should be president? <laughs> who Descartes or or no, God? Blake? Oh God. Um, well, according to Sarah Sanders, <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> God wanted Trump to be yeah, president. Yeah, I thought that. Which is not really belief in a democracy, but um, <laughs> it just means God is messing with the voting machines, um, or um, or the machines who are voting. That is the human machines that we are. Um, but Putin can will things. At um, any rate, I have a so just this whole th this may be unrelated, but this whole three sons and three elements, none could deduce a fourth of it, kind of reminds me. This may be a bad connection, but it kind of reminds me of like the senses are too gross, so he'll contrive yes. six yes. to something the other five. Right. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So. Uh, I think that that what you get in uh, late 17th and early 18th century poetry is something like the rationalism that you also get out of Locke and what Rochester is making fun of. Right. Um, good. Nice. Nice <laughs> connection. So, um, none could have other than natural or organic thoughts if he had none but organic perceptions. That's all you could think about. If the only thing that you perceived was in the world, you could only think about worldly things. Man's desires are limited by his perceptions. None can desire what he has not perceived. So this is all the claim that natural religion is. Um, these are all the consequences of natural religion. The desires and perceptions of man untaught by anything but organs of sense must be limited to objects of sense. So um, if that were true, then natural religion would make sense, but also it would make sense that Locke was right, that what humans are are screens onto which the world is projected. Um, so the B version, <coughs> which <coughs> is um, essentially the um, refutation of the A version. Man's perceptions are not bounded by organs of perception. He perceives more than sense, though ever so acute, can discover. Reason, so, so A is man as a natural being, B is man as, what, as the poetic genius. Reason, or the ratio of all we have already known, is not the same that it shall be when we know more. Three is missing, then four. The bounded is loathed by its possessor. The same dull round, even of a universe, would soon become a mill with complicated 
wheels. So that's the machinery, um, the universe as machine that um, Blake is against and which is what he sees Newtonian physics as claiming. That Newton, who showed the laws of physics, turns the universe into a machine and Blake is um, against that. He's got a wonderful little four-line poem. It's in, it's, uh, in this book, if you have this, it is on page 393. It's Mach-on, Mach-on, Voltaire, Rousseau, Mach-on, Mach-on, tis all in vain. You throw the sand against the wind, and the wind blows it back again. And every, sorry, it's 12 lines. And every sand becomes a gem, reflected in the beams divine. Blown back, they blind the mocking eye, but still in Israel's paths they shine. So Voltaire and Rousseau, as Enlightenment figures, are throwing sand against the wind because they are doing physics. They're doing experiments. Um, they are just looking at the physical properties of the world and the laws of motion. Not really fair about either of them, but still, that this, is, this is Blake against enlightenment. And he says, they throw the sand against the wind and the wind blows it back again. And every sand becomes a gem reflected in the beams divine. Blown back, they blind the mocking eye, but still in Israel's paths they shine. And then... Uh, the famous four lines, the atoms of Democritus and Newton's particles of light are sands upon the Red Sea shore where Israel's tents do shine so bright. So that's also what he's saying here in There is No Natural Religion, that all of these things are just sand on the shore where Israel's tents, that is the tents of the religious of of the of of those in a supernatural universe, all of us, poetical geniuses, shine so brightly. So Newton turns the universe into a mill with complicated wheels. If the many became the same as the few when possessed, more, more is the cry of a mistaken soul. Less than all cannot satisfy man. Um, so if the many become rich, they still won't have enough. What humans don't want is more. We want it all. And so that's not greed. That's transcendence, is what more, more means here. It's greed. Sorry, more, more means greed. All means transcendence. If any could desire what he is incapable of possessing, despair must be his eternal lot. So what we saw in, there's in, in the A um, plate is man's desires are limited by his perceptions. None can desire what he has not perceived. Here we get, if we could desire what, what we are incapable of possessing, we would have to despair. But he's not saying we can only desire what we perceive. He's saying what he says in the next version, and I'm sorry, in the next um, aphorism, the desire of man being infinite, the possession is infinite and himself infinite. So since we have infinite desires, clearly, 
And since we don't despair, we must possess infinity and we must ourselves be infinite. That's a kind of radical claim. Conclusion. If it were not for the poetic or prophetic character, the philosophic and experimental would soon be at the ratio of all things and stand still, unable to do more than repeat the same dull round over again. So ratio is a bad word for Blake. It means that things are stable and that what we know that we have a limited and fixed quantity, and no matter how we multiply numerator and denominator, it stays the same. And instead, we have poetical, poetic and prophetic character, and that's why things don't stand still. Application. He who sees the infinite in all things sees God. He who sees the ratio only sees himself only. So if you see the infinite, you see God. And the conclusion, therefore, God becomes as we are, that we may be as he is. So the standard Christian view is that God becomes as we are and limits himself in order to save us. Blake's re-imagination of Christianity is that God becomes human to show that humans are godlike and that we have the poetic and prophetic character. We see the infinite in all things. Another famous line of Blake's, of course, is um, to see the um, to see eternity in a grain. No, what is it? To see the infinite in a grain of sand, and eternity. Oh wait, let's. Ugh, I don't know where I'm blowing it. Um, I just want to get it exactly right. Um, That's a beautiful line. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah, to see a world in a grain of sand. Page four hundred three. If you have this. It's from um, Auguries of Innocence, uh, similar to the Innocence in the songs, songs of Innocence, but only similar. To see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. Why didn't you read that last <laughs> There's a lot we didn't read that we should have. Um, Isn't there a shorter version of that? Yeah, so Auguries of Innocence are sometimes, that it is the four-line version. Um, it's sometimes presented as a single poem and sometimes presented as um, a number of quatrains and couplets. So in this case, it's um, presented as a single poem, but it, it could just be that he was writing couplets and all of them were called Auguries of Innocence. Um, but the couplets are not, they don't flow one from another their, their uh, observations, kind of poetic journal, uh, journal entries. Okay, so let's look at the experienced version of the chimney sweep. There's one other poem that I want us to get to uh, today that's not in, um, in um, the Songs of Innocence and Experience. Um, but, and it's a very early poem that we talked about before, uh, So the, the innocent version of the chimney sweeper we already saw, and it's the one that ends happily um, with the promise of God as the Father, 
and if all uh, um, if all do their duty, um, they shall have God for their father and need not fear harm. Um, though the morning was cold, Tom was happy and warm, so if all do their duty, they need not fear harm. The experience version, if you have the Norton, is page 35, just before uh, the, nursery, the nurse's song. Uh, someone want to read it? Yes, Nicole. A little black thing among the snow, crying weep weep in notes of woe. Where are thy father and thy mother? Say, they are both gone up to the church to pray. Because I was happy upon thy feet, and smiled among the winter's snow. They clothed me in clothes of death, and taught me to sing notes of woe. And because I am happy and dance and sing, they think they have done me no injury, and, and are gone to praise God and his priest and king, who made up a heaven of our misery. Thank you. Um, so what's the relation of this to the first chimney sweeper? Yeah. I think uh, the first one doesn't have a consciousness of the sort of betrayal by his parents. But this one, he seems to be aware that they did him wrong. Like the line, they think they have done Mm-hmm. Yeah. An awareness of the fact that these parents, it shouldn't, his life right now should not be the way it is. There's not a better idea. Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. Nicole? I feel like this is kind of the moral of the first poem. Mm-hmm. Like, um, especially the end, and are gone. It's kind of what we're thinking when we read the first poem. Like, yeah. And, uh, like, especially the last part, and are gone to praise God and his priest and king. Who made a, a heaven of our misery? That's exactly, I think, what we thought that we were the first poem that they're imagining that there's like heaven, but there's not. Yeah, and they make up a heaven. Yeah, that's. Ex- I think that's exactly right. And let's get back to that. But I think that's a really good point. Um, it's one of several places where the first uh, poem is echoed in the second poem. So the first poem is, you'll have God for your father and need not fear harm. That is, you'll go to heaven. The angel will come with a key and let everyone out of their coffins of black. In the second version, um, we also end with heaven. What about the weep, weep, crying weep, weep, and notes of woe? What does that correspond to in the first version? Crying weep, weep, but like trying to get people, like trying to, trying to get higher to the yeah. So in the in the first version, it's the it's the little child lisping weep weep for sweep sweep. So it's my tongue um, could scarcely cry weep 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 weep. And in the second version, is a little black thing among the snow crying weep weep in notes of woe. Um, why is he black? Covered with soot. Yeah, covered with soot. So there he is in the snow, covered with soot, and he's crying, weep, weep, in notes of woe. It's the other meaning of weep. Yeah. So it's the same irony that my tongue could, scarce, could scarcely say, weep, 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 um, meaning sweep, sweep, and it's the same irony, which is, of course, we are to understand that sweep... Um, is not the important meaning or the important fact about that word. It's that sweep sounds the way it should as weep, because we should weep for this child. 
So who's asking the child, where thy father and mother say? Who asks that question? He asks it himself. He, Blake? No, not the kid himself, maybe. He asks it to himself, maybe like rhetorically or... Huh. It seems to, to me like it was just some, like the same way we ask how are you, like someone just saw him and was like, hey, where are your parents? Without actually really caring, just like this child is Okay. Although the say there mean, might be a little bit stronger than that. It's certainly, it is a question you might ask a child um, who looks lost. And there's maybe something slightly accusatory in the say. Um, where, where's, where your mother and father say? Yeah. What if it's God? Asking the question? Mm-hmm. Huh. <laughs> um... And why would he be asking it? Um, because he's the father who's supposed to give everything. Mm-hmm. So it could be like... Like catechizing. catechizing. Yeah, like yeah. a play in his head where he's sort of asking God why his life is like this. So like why he, he has no parents, where, where his parents are. So yeah. God is like... Hey, where are your parents, the ones that I gave you? Yeah, why'd you misplace them? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there, it is, if, it, if it does sound a little bit accusatory, um, I think it might, that if you think of situations where that kind of question could be asked, it could be if a kid is running wild, and someone would say to the kid, you know, from Covington High School or something, where are the adults who should be chaperoning you? Where are your father and mother? Why are you out in the snow offering your services and crying weep, weep in notes of woe? But it's also the accusation is against the father and mother, right? That is, how are they letting you do this? And the complexity of that accusation, which is a familiar one when kids are doing, when little kids are doing something that they should be being supervised about, is you are doing something that you know you shouldn't be doing and wouldn't be doing if your father and mother were there. And so the kid is being accused. But also, your father and mother shouldn't be letting you do this, which means the parents are being accused. You know that situation, right, from early childhood or from childhood. So there might be a sense of that. It might be that whoever is asking the question, whether Blake or God or the poet or the poem, or the poem is a kind of setup, where is the father and mother, that the poem asking, is asking that question. In any event, it feels like the father and mother should not be allowing this to happen. And the question where they are is a question of how can they be allowing this. Whoever is asking the question, that seems to be the meaning of the question. How does this differ from, and how is it similar to the innocent chimney sweep, to the corresponding moment in the innocent chimney sweep? Where's his father in the innocent version? And where's his mother? Dead. Dead. So when this 
sweep answers they're both gone up to the church to pray, that's a different answer from what the innocent chimney sweep would say, which is, when my mother died, I was very young. So in the innocent version, his mother is dead and his father has sold him. In this version, they're off praying, but presumably they're still his parents and they are renting his services out, maybe, but they don't, it doesn't seem like it's quite the same sweep. Yeah. Like, um, I feel like the first poem, it really makes us, uh, uh, like, make the parents accountable for the child suffering because of his, like, oblivion. Mm -hmm. It's like, in this one, there's no awareness of, like, we're not blaming anybody. It's just, like, the things that we are, things that, they're just like that. But in the chim the experienced version, it seems to me like it's the child who's taking the blame for the present state that he's in. And it's almost like he's absolving his parents, like it's o it's okay, like rationalizing. When he says they're uh, they that they've gone to pray. Yeah, that they, they think they've done me no injury. Yeah. So it's like it's not their fault. You don't see that differently. Go ahead. I read that as sort of a when um it's sort of I think of like just because someone in this case the chimney sweep child, but in any case really someone who's abused or abandoned or whatever it is, when even if they are handling it, if they're going about life this because of happy events and saying people think that nothing bad happened just because they're handling it, but it doesn't negate the fact that they were abandoned or yeah. Yeah, if, if you say he doesn't think he... It's different to say they don't think they've hurt me than to do an injury to a person. To do an injury to them has a sense of something non-accidental about it. You wouldn't call accidentally dropping a rock on someone's toe you would say, I'm sorry I hurt you, um, or even I'm sorry I injured you, but you wouldn't call that doing an injury. The, it's the doing of the injury means that there's something intentional about it. Causing an injury is different. If it were even they think they have caused me no injury, that would be different from doing someone an injury. Doing someone an injury is a crime, and it's not something that can happen accidentally. So, nevertheless, they think they have done me no injury, which means something like they think that they've gotten away with it. They've done something that they should have thought better of, but didn't. They would have done it even if they saw that it caused me an injury. I think that's the implication. Yeah. It's interesting how the two poems, how religion functions differently. I think most, like, you can see in The Fly, like, I think a lot of the sequence is satirizing or paradizing the form of Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, so in the innocent version, the promise of a blissful afterlife is what um, motivates their work, is, like, what makes horrible living conditions livable for them. Um, while 
his parents praying they're getting absolution or expiation for their sins. So it's like on either side of that spectrum, it it gives the um, innocent chimney sweeps like a false consciousness, and it gives the exploitive parents uh, false absolution for their sins. Yeah, good. So in the innocent version, the chimney sweeps think they'll go to heaven and they'll have God for a father and that's all good. And in the experienced chimney sweep, it's the parents who think that everything's okay because they're religious people who are praying. And the child is happy and laughs and sings and dances and sings. So the child seems to be fine. So... Is there a problem with a line like and because I'm happy and dance and sing in a poem like this? I think we're, we're now on the same territory as the nurses' songs. Because I'm happy and dance and sing. Is he? Does he? I don't think he's really dancing or singing. He's, he's singing songs of woe. Yeah, the notes of woe. I think it was just a, a clever way Yeah, but you, he could have written, and because I seem happy and dance and sing, and that would make more I sense. I don't think he even seems happy. Yeah, I don't think that's, he's clothed in clothes of death. Yeah. And he's singing songs of love. Okay, so why does he say, because I am happy? So you just see it as a transition, as a, yeah. as, a, as a technical necessity. But I think you're right. I think there's a reason to say I don't know what it is. <laughs> For the second, like the second line, <clears throat> that's the reason why we have the first line. It's the reason why they think they've done no injury. Yeah, I think that's what Max is saying also. That is oh. that it's a, uh, it's a setup for the second line. Or like... But it also could be, like, it's not from our, from his perspective, yeah. but it's from their perspective, or yeah. somebody else's perspective. But is he dancing and singing? Forget the happy part, although he says, I am happy. But is he dancing and singing? Yes. Okay, then. Um, no, because he's full of woe. Yes, why? Um, I think he's dancing and singing and cheating himself with this false hope of God being his father. Okay, does he know it? In the innocence? No, in the experience version. Oh, never mind then. It's a, it's a tough poem, but it's tough, I think, in the same way that the, that the nurse's song are tough, which is that... Oh, it comes in experience, yeah. Yeah, it comes in experience. Um, So in philosophy, there's a philosopher named named Grice who has a really great essay on meaning. And what he does is he distinguishes between two kinds of meaning, naturalistic and, and unnaturalistic meaning. So naturalistic meaning is something like you have a fever, that means you're sick. And naturalistic meaning is meaning which is not intention. It's not that the microbes or the body or the immune system are intending to inform 
a, re a receiver of a message that you're sick. It means that you're sick because we can interpret symptoms as symptoms of illness. Non-naturalistic meaning, which is the meaning of our language and so on, is meaning which it's intended that the receiver of the message should understand. So if I say, I'll see you tomorrow, there's nothing in what I say that comes out of the way the world is which entitles you to predict that I'll be there tomorrow. The way red sky at morning means that the sailor should take warning. It's not that the sky is telling the sailor that. It's that that's what it means. But if this guy, I had to do that, the sky and this guy, if this guy says, don't go out today because I'll shoot you if you do, then I'm warning you in another sense than um, the sense that you should take from your expertise in meteorology. Here I want you to understand what will happen if you go out and sail today. Whereas the red sky at morning has no desires at all, doesn't want you to understand anything. So naturalistic meaning is when you say something like the barometer is falling, that means it, there's going to be a storm. The barometer isn't intending to tell you that. It's simply the way the physics of, of atmospheric interaction works. If I say, there's going, if I tell you there's going to be a storm tomorrow, then I want you to understand that, and I, who am the person telling you, know what it is that I want you to understand. So sometimes what we'll do, you could say those are just simply two different things, that one thing signifies and the other means, that one thing is a symptom and the other is a sign, to use a standard distinction. But the reason we tend to conflate them and use the same word for both, and many, many languages do, the reason we tend to conflate them is that we tend to anthropomorphize things in the world. So what we'll do is say something like, look at that Coke machine, took my money, doesn't give a shit, won't give me the Coke, is completely indifferent to all my anger. So you're angry at the Coke machine. You think the Coke machine should, be, should feel bad because you're angry at it. And it's not that you really feel this way, but still we get angry at vending machines that don't do what they're supposed to do. We get angry at our computers all the time. And often what we'll do is we'll make a kind of fun of something inanimate for you know, just, just think of a standard version of that. You know, look at that rock in the middle of the road, refusing to move. It thinks it's so cool. It doesn't have to get out of the way just because I'm a human being. So obviously you don't think the rock is thinking any of those things, but it's a way of expressing yourself. Now sometimes we'll do that with people who are doing stuff innocently, almost in Blake's sense of innocence, innocently, and we'll you know, see someone laughing on the other side of the dining hall, and we in our bitterness will say to our neighbor, 
look at him laughing without a care in the world, not giving a shit about all the terrible things that I'm going through, even though that person doesn't know anything about me, um, and will blame them for not caring about everything that I'm going through. So that way of treating what a human being is doing as meaningful to us, we often, does this make sense to people, um, that we'll often treat something that means naturalistically, like, of course that person doesn't care what's happening to me, that person doesn't know who I am. We will treat that as non-naturalistic meaning. That is, that they intentionally don't care that it's meaningful in the second version, as in it matters that they don't care, as though they had a choice and they chose not to care what's happening to me. So we'll always, we always do that in looking at inanimate objects, but also sometimes in looking at other people as though they are inanimate objects whom we are animating. So they aren't. We don't have to animate them. They already exist. But we will often treat other people as though they're inanimate objects who we then animate because they're meaning, non, because they're meaning naturalistically and we're treating them as though they're meaning non-naturalistically. Because most of what we do, most of the things that we do that other people are reading us as doing, we're just doing naturalistically. We're, you know, the person who's driving too slowly in front of you, usually they're not trying to slow you down. Sometimes they are because it's Massachusetts. But usually they're not trying to slow you down. But you treat them as though they are, as though they have all the time in the world because <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Um, and it's as though they're demonstrating that to you. And you know they're not, but we still do that. So the other version of that is something like what Blake is doing, or a version of that which Blake is doing here, is that the child is meaning non... I'm sorry. The child is meaning naturalistically that it's been injured. You can see he's been injured. He's black. He's singing notes of woe. He's crying, whoa, whoa. He's crying, weep, weep, weep amid the snow. He is a natural emblem of oppression and of a kind of slavery, a kind of some, somewhere between indentured slavery and serfdom. And he's been sold, as we know from the innocent version. So the child is naturalistically meaning the terrible unfairness of the way the class structure of London is organized. And he doesn't know that he's meaning that. So what he means non-naturalistically, that is what he's intending to mean, is I'm pretty happy because I'm going to go to heaven and I'll have God for a father and I need not fear harm and my hair can't be ruined anymore because it's been shaved and things are pretty good in the world. That's what the child means non-naturalistically. That's his intended mental meaning. But much more significant than that is what he means without knowing it. That, be, that is to say means naturalistically. And what he means naturalistically, what he means without knowing it, 
is that he's been injured and that he's been treated terribly and that he has been vowed to a life of misery and is living a life of misery. So he doesn't know that he's living a life of misery and he doesn't mean non-naturalistically to say that he's living a life of misery, but that's precisely intensifies the misery that we can see he's living, that his own way of living means naturalistically, that he has been so oppressed that he doesn't even know that he's oppressed. What's happened to him is so bad that he doesn't even know that what's happened to him is bad. So what the speaker of this poem is doing, or what Blake is doing, or what the poet is doing, it's not quite clear to say who that is, is putting words into the child's situation and saying this is what the child's situation means. And because he's putting words into that situation, he's turning what is a naturalistic meaning, the pure fact of the child living so horrendously into a meaning that we should understand as spoken and said and meant by the speaker, intended by the speaker, to make us rethink. So it's the usual, I mean, politics is often, or hard-hearted politics is often takes the form of looking at people who are oppressed and deciding that they don't resent their oppression and that therefore they're not oppressed because resentment is non-naturalistic meaning. It means they know it and they would be saying it. And if naturalistically they're not saying it, then, or I'm sorry, if they're only saying it naturalistically, we have to get rid of that only and say it doesn't matter if they don't know that they're miserable. If they are miserable, something has to be done about it. That's Blake's view. Yeah. Uh, like, as, when I first read the, like, uh, I am a happy and dancing thing, like, it kind of reminded me almost of, like, slaveholders pointing yeah. to the fact exactly. that their slaves sing, and that means that, oh, my our slaves sing, so that must mean they must be happy. Right, exactly. And it kind of almost reminds me of, like, in Harry Potter with the elves who don't realize how oppressed they are. Yes, and like, yeah. Like Ron saying that, oh, like they're happy the way they are, so like we'll just let them be. And it's almost like we pity, we pity the innocent even if they're happy. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up the uh, uh, masters using the like dancing slaves as a justification for slavery, because um, that's that line popped out to me in that context also. Yeah, and I can't help but think of the little black boy. Yes. Um, where just like the uh, in the songs of innocence, the chimney sweeps dream of becoming white, mm-hmm. um, you know, losing their occupational blackface. Right. Um, and so I'm just I'm not sure how to like. And that boy grew up to be Governor Northam. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. 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 No, but it's like it's uh, yeah. Also, in the back of my mind, there's a recent article on Mary Poppins. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Sweet right. Right. Um, but uh, you mean the way Dick Van Dyke does it in in the original Mary Poppins? Well, then they're reading that into the current one in yeah. an interesting way. Yeah. Um, but uh, I haven't seen the current one. Neither have I. But uh, <laughs> but I, I'm so not sure how to articulate the connection. But it seems like there's a rhyme. Yeah, and the, and it's there. There definitely is. But one thing that you can then say is that the experienced version of the chimney sweeper is a reading of the innocent version. In other words, and I think this is what you were saying, that, that because I am happy and dance and sing, they think they have done me no injury, you might read the innocent version of the chimney sweeper and think that. Um, well, what's so terrible if the chimney sweeper doesn't know that he's oppressed and if, if um, they can have such wonderful dreams? I wish I were a child. I would be a chimney sweeper if I could sleep like that and have such good dreams. Um, instead of just having the chimney sweepers come into my house and, and um, uh, uh, sweep my chimneys, they have no idea how, how eagerly I would exchange situations with them, which, of, which is BS. But that is the fantasy of goodwill that the oppressors have. And that's what Blake is doing here, is he's saying, if you take the songs of innocence as signifying that despite everything that the social situation of economic oppression does, those people are happy, so it's okay. You're misreading the songs of innocence. The songs of innocence are showing who it is who's oppressed, but they're not saying that they're not oppressed. And that's what this poem is specifically saying. Because I am happy and dance and sing, they think they have done me no injury, but they sure have. And although the child can't, not only can't articulate those thoughts, he can't even think them, nevertheless, he's been injured. And that's what the song of experience is saying, is that the child has been injured. And what this is telling you is that if you read the innocent version of the chimney sweeper and think things are okay, this song is telling you, no, that is your own motivated, selfish reading of that. And um, make up a heaven of our misery, that has two meanings. It means, which are related, it means both what Nicole is saying, which is they just make up heaven so that uh, the promise of heaven means that the chimney sweepers are happy. They're happy with a promise, and if they're happy with a promise, that's all they really need. And um, the other meaning is they are living in their own heaven, the heaven of the aristocrats, of those who are um, hanging out with the priest and the king. They praise God and his priest and his king, and they, they belong to that society. And so they live in a kind of economic heaven. They're the 1%. They live in that kind of economic heaven out of the misery of the chimney sweepers who they tell themselves are happy doing what they're doing and therefore whom they don't take any concern of. And so this poem is speaking for the voiceless chimney sweeper who can't articulate these thoughts because he can't even think them because of the ideology 
um, which contributes to his oppression. Yeah. Um, is it a different meaning if it's like the misery, the heaven is literally made from their misery? Yeah. Like, in metaphorically, of course, but it's, it's built from their misery. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, first of all, the heaven that they have by living high off the hog. That is, living, living well, ec- economically well. But you could also say, and this is closer to Nicole's reading, but they're both there. Um, they're, both, they're both equally there. That heaven is invented in order to make people not rebel against their misery. So misery is the substance out of which heaven is invented. Without misery, you would not need heaven. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Yeah, another dialectic opposite. Because it's so interesting because, like, pe- death is very scary to people. So it's like they need to trust their anxiety about death and something. Yeah. So religion is like a good, religion is like a bank that's like, give us your life. Right. Invest your life in us. And we'll, we'll promise you that, like, you'll be okay when you die. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not necessarily true. Because they, how do they know that you're going to be okay when you die if they haven't died yet? They heard from God. To me, it's also almost like, like the most oppressed people are the most religious. And when you think about like, colonies, right? Like, yeah. Latin yeah. America is so Catholic, like, Africa, like, every yeah. country is either, like, very Christian or very Muslim, yeah. like, yeah, yeah. because Religion. they've been, yeah, 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 because they're, they, and it's like, they're, they're practicing a religion that was brought to them by Europe and the Middle East, and yeah. they believe it more than, than, and it's all, like, yeah, yeah. All, like, yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I think this is like really shocking just because we're from these places where <laughs> yeah. people swear yeah. by things like this. Yeah. And then, yeah, so it's kind of eye-opening. Yeah. Well, that's what Blake wants to do. So just quickly take a look at the two Holy Thursday poems, which are another example of this. Um, the Innocent Version... We, we should also look at The Little Black Boy, which is a, a fascinating poem. I also but, wanted to look at the clock in the puzzle. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Love seeketh only self to please. Um, yes. Yeah, that's, an, that's another good one. Okay, let's just take a look at the two Holy Thursday poems. We, the, the difference between them will be obvious, and we don't have to uh, do a close reading of them. But the first one is on page 22 of the Norton, and it's, so Holy Thursday is um, Easter week. T'was on a Holy Thursday, their innocent faces clean, the children walking two and two in red and blue and green, gray-headed beetles walked before with wands as white as snow, till into the high dome of Paul's, that is St. Paul's Cathedral, they like Thames waters flow. Oh, what a multitude they seemed, these flowers of London town. Seated in companies, they sit with radiance all their own. The hum of multitudes was there, but multitudes of lambs, again. Thousands of little boys and girls raising their innocent hands. 
Now, like a mighty wind, they raise to heaven the voice of song, or like harmonious thunderings, the seats of heaven among. Beneath them sit the aged men, wise guardians of the poor. Then cherish pity, lest you drive an angel from your door. So essentially, it's beautiful. There's all these children going to church on Holy Thursday, and they're all cleaned up for it, and it's really, really wonderful. And they're all little angels, and the wise, um, uh, the, the wise adults, the aged men, wise guardians of the poor, or the beetles, the gray-headed beetles walking before them, they all love children. It's all for the children. And then if you look at the experience version of Holy Thursday, which is um, page 31 of the Norton, the experience version is a really angry question. Is this a holy thing to see in a rich and fruitful land, babes reduced to misery, fed with cold and usurous hand? Is that trembling cry a song? So that would be like the song of the chimney sweeper. Can it be a song of joy? And so many children poor? It is a land of poverty, and their sun does never shine, and their fields are bleak and bare, and their ways are filled with thorns. It is eternal winter there. For where'er the sun does shine, and where'er the rain does fall, babe can never hunger there, or poverty, the mind appall. So the same vision of all these children in the Songs of Innocence, it's, yeah, they're singing songs of joy, but nevertheless, their sun never shines, and their fields are bleak and bare, and these babes are reduced to misery. So that's another These have been kids in an orphanage? Yeah. Um, yeah, Nicole. First of all, like, I'm liking the idea of like, thinking about experience from just being readings of Innocence poems, and they're yeah. also readings where like, you know, the critics are trying to ruin the book for you, kind of. <laughs> yes. And the other thing is, like, this thing that's that why, me, That's why we professors like them so much. <laughs> no, the thing that reminds me of like, Holy Thursday and the experience to Sweeper is that they're both kind of like, these figures are on display for us, but they're not just on display for us, they're kind of like, shoved into our faces and it's like see look look at what's happening and look at what you're causing kind of mm -hmm. yeah yeah exactly because also probably the people that would be able to read these poems are people who are well educated well who, who are literate yeah 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 absolutely so it's you know these are very angry poems the songs of experience especially and the songs of innocence tell you what they're angry about Okay, you want to look at the clock and pebble? What page is that? There you go. I was right there. It's short, too. Yeah, yeah. So, read it. Um, Love seeketh not itself to please, nor for itself hath any care. But for another gives its ease, and builds a heaven in hell's despair. So sung a little clod of clay, trodden with cattle's feet. But a pebble of the brooks warbled out these meters meet. Love seeketh only self to please, to bind another to its delight. Joys in another, uh, joys, joys in another's loss of ease, and builds a hell in heaven's despite. Yeah. So, one is innocent, the clod of clay, mm -hmm. 
and one is experienced, the um, pebble of the brook, and they have two different views of love. One is love for another, and one is self-love. So love seeketh not itself to please. That's what's so great about love, is that you love someone else. That one is the trodden one. And that's the one that's trodden, trodden with the cattle's feet. But a pebble of the brook, which is always presumably being refreshed by the waters, um, warbled out these meters meet, which are this good poem. And it's very much against love. Love is purely selfish. And the Paradise Lost reference, too. Yeah. That is, the, uh, the mind is its own place and can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. So very much the Paradise Lost reference, too. Love can make hell heaven? Well, that is what the Clot of Clay thinks. That if the Clot of Clay is wrong, but it's not so clear... In other words, what do you think Blake would think? <clears throat> what would Blake say to the pebble? Yeah. I think the pebble is almost like the, the chimney sweeper again. It's like they're in believing in heaven. Like they, they, they're, they believe in heaven because they're miserable, and believing in heaven makes them actually more miserable, and they're kind of digging their own grave in trying to go up and out of the chimney. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, good, yeah. I think, like, the pebble is, like, a cynical person who's been through so much shit that they don't believe in love anymore. Yeah. Oh, sorry, the clod would be, like... Like the the innocent chimney sweeper, yeah. I think Blake would be saying that you have to split the difference, that you don't want to, uh... You don't want to only please the other partner, and you also don't want to only receive pleasure yourself. You want to be reciprocal. Yeah. I think that's... And neither of them are saying that thing. He's oh, like, so they're both like, wrong. Oh. Yeah, the pebble, the pebble is, is a little bit... In its cynicism, it's proving what it says, which is the, the pebble is pleased with its own cynicism. And... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But who do we like better? The clod. Yeah. So in a sense, the clod of clay is getting at something, which is our own preference for the clod of clay, that the clod of clay is saying it's innocent. But all of these poems have to expect that on some level, it's like Dickens, that on some level, any reader is going to be on the side of the innocent figures. So in the, at the same time that the poems and the Dickens later will complain that they're all these figures who are selfish and exploitative, the assumption here is that the reader won't be selfish and exploitative, at least not consciously so. And so there is a kind of assumption here that if you, if you are Blake and if you can indicate that what looks like happiness isn't, and that what looks like cynicism is worse than cynicism, you can actually make a difference. You can be convincing. And that means that it's not just cruelty versus innocence, but there are those like Blake himself who 
when they think about it, they're not innocent, but they are nevertheless on the side of innocence. There's that third possibility here, which is you're calling Ryan splitting the difference. But the third possibility is understanding how innocence is being exploited and taken advantage of, but still being on the side of innocence. And that, I think, is, is the direction Blake is pushing us towards. The, I guess we don't have time for the little black boy, but the, it, it's, a, it's a subtle poem, more subtle than it seems. At first, it may seem purely racist, not intentionally racist. That is, you have to recall that this is 1789 and that what we would see as a racist simile or metaphor now, and rightly see that see, see it as racist now, isn't then. But I think Blake is actually more subtle than what we would think we might have to excuse him for. So when he says, my mother bore me in the southern wild, and I am black, but oh, my soul is white, then the idea would be, even though I'm black, I have a white soul, so it's okay. And again... <laughs> but it isn't really... You've got to take stuff in context. Yeah, and that's I the thing. We're completely out of context right now in this yeah. country. And no, but I think it's just funny. The yeah. Like, I yeah. think you can actually read a lot of Shakespeare as standing up for women's rights, and I think you can even read Margin of Venice as actually like showing that Jews are equal to Christians, yeah. even though we would read it. Oh, I think so. I totally think so. <laughs> but the thing to notice about this poem is that Blake is expecting you to make that mistake. That is to to say, okay, this little black boy, yeah, he he's an honorary white is essentially what those first two lines are having the boy say. But what he says at the end is, just look at the last two stanzas after his mother speaks to him and says, the cloud will vanish. Thus did my mother say and kissed me, this is at line 21, and thus say I to little English boy, when I from black and he from white cloud free and round the tent of God, like lambs, we joy. So it turns out that it's not that the little black boy is a white boy in a black cloud, which is what it seems like from the first two lines. It's both the black boy and the white boy. They're both covered with a cloud. One is black, one is white, but the color doesn't matter. And that is a, that's a pretty strong switch in your expectation in the poem, which it's Blake's point to make. And then he continues, I'll shade him from the heat till he can bear to lean in joy upon our father's knee, and then I'll stand and stroke his silver hair and be like him, and he will then love me. And that's heartbreaking. That is, that although the boy knows that there's no difference between them, that they are just two boys with human bodies, nevertheless, he is feeling that the boy is the 
pebble, and he's the clod. That is, that he loves the boy, he loves the English boy, and wants the English boy to love him back. But the English boy doesn't yet love him back. And maybe after they die and go to heaven and go to see God, they'll both have God for their father. But what you can see here is that Blake's view is, of course there's no difference between them. And it's not that there's no difference because they're both fundamentally white. It's that they're both fundamentally human. But if there is a difference between them, it's that the white boy thinks that there's a difference, which makes him superior to the black boy. And this is a song of innocence. If it were a song of experience, you, what you wouldn't have is the black boy saying, then he'll love me and it'll all be good. But as a song of innocence, he's like the chimney sweeper. He sees the possibility of a good outcome, even though he, it's not good yet. I think like, well, also like, since you touched on this already, like his selflessness, it's like he has all this experience, which is not necessarily good, but he's like giving himself to help the English child. Yeah. 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 And it's like almost like a big brother yeah. to the English child. Yeah. Yeah. Love seeketh not itself to please. So he's the real figure of love, and the English child is not. The English child is like the parents praying in church and thinking that he's done no injury when he has. Okay, um, for Wednesday, the book of Thel, which is in this book, here. Thank you. Thing is that 